This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Good morning. It's Friday, the 2nd of February, and you're listening to the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. My guest this week is Dr. Ed Asant, Senior Lecturer in Education at Manchester University. We're going to discuss democratic education and why educating for citizenship is now more important than ever. I think you'll enjoy our discussion. This is Teachers Talk Radio and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. What does it mean to be educating for a democracy, to be creating citizens? And should schools really be trying? Is that something that should be left to sixth forms and to university students? Or is it more important than ever because, well, students, young people, are the least likely to vote and yet the most likely to be passionate about causes, environment, politics, war, and so on. Whereas I, against my better judgment, will trudge dependably towards the voting booth later this year, knowing that it won't make much difference, but somehow believing that I should vote anyway. Maybe young people have it right. Maybe they see politics for what it is. Certainly, with the rise of populism and across Europe, the rise of the far right, of the return of 19th century nationalism and the steady degradation of the environment, it's possible that schools should be educating active, thoughtful, critical citizens. Now, more than ever, in a world where you can curate your own information sources, which echo back to you the thoughts, fears and prejudices you had originally, what role should schools have in this most challenging of times? For those of you who have listened to the Friday morning break before, or found it as a podcast, you'll know that I am, after a career in education, exploring what schools are for, generally through the advice and help of expert guests, teachers, past teachers and academics, and writers. This week my guest, Dr Edda Sand, a former citizenship and social studies teacher, worked for Manchester Metropolitan University and now senior lecturer at Manchester University. She's published more than 40 book chapters and journal articles. In 2016, she co-authored an article on citizenship education and was awarded the Children's Identity and Citizenship European Association Best Publication Award. She's recently published a monograph entitled Political Education in Times of Populism. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR 
2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving and many more. Offer the Eaton X curriculum in your school for free. Visit EatonX.com to find out more. And we're back with my guest this week, as I said in the introduction, Dr. Edda Sant from Manchester Institute of Education. So, Edda, thank you and welcome to the show. Thank you, John, for inviting me here today. It's a delight to be with you. <laughs> well, I, I'm particularly interested, I must admit, because I, in, this, in this conversation we're about to have, because uh, for much of my teaching career, I taught government and politics. And again and again, and it was A-level. So in this country, A-level. I didn't teach citizenship. There isn't such a thing. And people would ask me, well, you teach politics, John. How, how do you manage to be unbiased? And I would explain very patiently again and again. But it was essentially an, an analysis of government. And it was how people, you know, how people understand how government works. And I, my bias, such as it is, rarely came into it. And, of course, that's going to be one of the issues, because I know that the most interesting thing that you have researched in, you've written about, is citizenship education and about what you call it democratic education. So let's start with that, Edda. How did you get into the field and become interested in, and then we'll get on to defining what that is, democratic and citizenship education? Um, well, I was um, some years ago, well, many years ago, um, back in Spain, I was uh, uh, what there is defined a social science teacher. And that means I used to teach um, secondary history, secondary geography. And then a new law come along and social science teachers were supposed to be teaching citizenship education as well. So I was one of the first teachers in Spain who started teaching the new course, the new subject of citizenship education. And I was fascinated by teaching that course. It was a uh, equivalent to year nine, uh, year 10 students uh, in England, 14-year-olds um, kind of. And uh, it was fascinating how interested they were to talk about politics, something that I didn't expect. So they were so, so keen. But at the same time, um, they were uh, they had a feeling that there was really little they could do. They were quite skeptical about democracy. They were quite skeptical about their vote. They were quite skeptical about all this. So that kind of pushed me to go back to university and try to find out more about what we do to actually facilitate that um, these young people who were so interested in politics actually had a, a, a better opportunity to, to make a difference. And, you know, one thing moved to the other and I ended up university and teaching teachers of citizenship, actually. Well, the, well, the brilliant thing about um, our profession, teaching in secondary school, teaching in universities and so on, is that you get to pursue the things you're most delighted to be interested in. You know, you can say, was there a particular Spanish context in the sense that Spain would have been, you might have thought, as a, as a youngish democracy in some ways? You, uh, and part of the aim of citizenship and ed democratic education is to inculcate students with the practices and and values of democratic education. 
Was that the was that the motivation? Well, partially yes and partially no. Um, to an extent, when I start teaching citizenship, um, a lot of the students um, in in the classroom, secondary students, they already gave democracy for granted. They didn't think, you know, my my former PG supervisor used to say there was a massive gap between his generation who lived the dictatorship, my generation who were the new democracy generation, and the new generations who didn't even have a, a proper memory of the dictatorship. So they, they see it of themselves very much in a democratic context. They grow up in a in a country that was part of the European Union and they felt such as so it wasn't that much an attempt to kind of bring a new democracy alive. I think by then there was an understanding democracy was already alive. But more an attempt to um to uh, I would say fight back against the levels of um skepticism and uh, somehow levels of um um, anti-democratic, or I wouldn't say anti-democratic, but more in the line of um, crisis of faith of democracy to an extent. So it was it, it was in those alignments. That's a, that's a fascinating phrase that because I, I would say that all what you've said there applies to this country, and you know the old the old early you know the, what thinks of itself as an embedded democracy with a long long history. But if I was to say that one of the things I've experienced in teaching towards the end of my teaching career was there was a crisis of faith in democracy, and it's and. The crisis of democracy seems to be uh, something that you hear not only in discussion among academics but among among students. Uh, they have a lot of a lot of cynicism and yet, paradoxically, a lot of fascination with politics as well. I never found it difficult to teach. They were interested in it, although cynical about it. If we start with democratic education and citizenship education, and I, there is a there is a course in Britain which many teachers teach citizenship. Is there a a difference and is there a tension between the two? I think citizenship's aims are very specific and democratic education might be more broad. Yes, I think, well, first of all, I would say this is very contextualized. So what happens in UK or particularly in England, which is the context I, I know better, is very different to what happens elsewhere. Okay, so that I need to say this in case someone is listening from another perspective and saying, oh, that's not the case in US or that's not the case in Nigeria or that's not the case elsewhere. Um, but having said that, from my perspective, I think there is a, a couple of um, important differences. Um, well, first of all, citizenship education. Um, there is some forms of uh, uh, similar courses to citizenship education, you can call it political education and so on, that are not necessarily the per se attempting to promote democratic values. So you can have actually forms of citizenship education in a dictatorial system. You can certainly have those. Um, so to me, that's a, a very clear um, difference. And to an extent that sometimes when I talk about uh, citizenship education, I even talk about education for democratic citizenship to emphasize that the democracy part is, is there uh, at the core. Of course, in England, citizenship yeah. education is citizenship education in the context of democratic society. So in that respect, that different doesn't exist there. But there is context where the different exists. I think the second main difference has to do um, with citizenship education is usually quite explicit about the teaching of politics. It's usually about um, talking about politics and it's usually about facilitating um, political knowledge, political literacy, political values. It's, it's extremely explicit. And it tends to be, not always, but it tends to be having some sort of allocated space and time in the curriculum, like in a sort of discrete subject sort of way. Um, in contrast, um, democratic education is not necessarily like that. Um, many people would argue that democratic education is not that much about teaching about democracy 
or even though teaching um, for democracy in terms of promoting knowledges and values and attitudes and so on that would be expected from um, democratic citizenship. But it was also about teaching through democracy terms of embedding these democratic values um, through teaching. So a lot has been said that democratic education can happen as much in citizenship education as it can happen in math education or English or obviously history or any other subject. Because um, when you facilitate uh, possibilities for young people and children to have an opportunity to um, have their say, to influence what happened, to influence what happens in the context of the school, you know, through um, school councils or school assemblies or so on. This is also forms of democratic education that it might not be explicit teaching about politics, yet you are trying to facilitate that your people experience democratic ways of life. So I'm not sure what the difference is clear, but I think that's how I identify it. What you're describing always well to go with this next, which was I mean, citizenship can be a discrete education, sorry, a discrete subject. You can say, oh, it's on the timetable this morning. We've got two hours of an hour, half an hour of citizenship. And yet you're describing democratic education is something the school embraces uh, through its extracurricular activities, through its opportunities to visit places, to speakers to come in, to talk, or in just in the, cult, the sort of relationships between the staff and the students and the atmosphere in the school, which is... Which is um, which, which seems to be something which, if you walked into a school and said, this, this school is doing democratic education well, what would you say? I think, in my understanding, I, well, there's different levels here. The first thing I would say is that there would be a combination of the explicit and the implicit. The explicit, the cross-curricular, the across different subjects, the ethos of the school, whether the school has a democratic ethos, but also an explicit. Some explicit time dedicated in the curriculum to talk about politics, have opportunities to discuss institutions, but also embrace with political discussions like key political debates that we are all interested to an extent. And young people are very keen on discussing these issues. I find it very sad. Sometimes the other day I was speaking with um, a group of um, students, uh, secondary students from around Manchester, where I am based, and they were saying that they have hardly any opportunity in, 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 in their no normal everyday classroom to actually have um, conversations and, and discuss political issues that are in any way controversial. We know that curriculum is very packed. We know we need to do very a lot of things. And we know that usually um, um, subjects that are prioritizing the curriculum and are assessed in GCCs and so on take priority. And therefore, um, there is often not many opportunities, actually, for young people to discuss uh, politics. So an ideal school for me would be one that actually embraces democratic um, values in, in their everyday life. It has these participatory structures. It has this uh, democratic ethos in the relationship. It offers these extracurricular activities, but it also gives time, allocated time, for teachers and, and young people and children to have opportunities to actually discuss about politics and be fascinated about it. So it's a bit of a combination of, you know, everything. <laughs> You're almost describing a very lively, very engaged sort of school. And one of the things that struck me with what you just said there is, of course, the pressures on teachers, the pressures on schools and funding cuts, and also the, the pressures on uh, certain subjects are going, the school is going to highlight maths, English, STEM subjects, science. Those are the things we're going to say, well, this is a good school because of those. And the, the politics and the democratic extracurricular stuff is going to be a bit of a luxury. And I also have a fear that I don't know if anything has come across in your research on this, that this is going to be disproportionately 
in schools which seem to be struggling in poorer areas. Those are the things that are going to be cut. You know, let's concentrate on the maths and the English for you guys. But you in the private school, in the more middle class area, we can develop your wider interests. Is that something you've seen? It's it's something we've seen. It's something we have research about. It's something that I experience in conversations with teachers and, and young people. You are absolutely right. Unfortunately, what happens, and I have colleagues it like this in, 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 a, in a paper we are working together, and it's about to be an academic um, paper is about to be published. He described the political rich get richer and the political poor get poorer. Um, and, and, and I think that that's absolutely the case. And it's understandable to an extent. You know, you are teaching in a school where, the, you know, young people are experiencing a lot of social and economic issues. And you think, well, what it's more essential, what it's more immediately essential is for these young people to get some sort of um, knowledge and skills that might allow them to go into further education and to get a proper job and so on. It's understandable. I, I totally get it. But at the same time, by doing that, what we are doing is we actually um, taking back the opportunities of young people, of these young people, to have a, a proper political say in a sense of being able to properly participate and have an input uh, uh, in their society. So it is this complex um, situation. But you are entirely right; it's um, absolutely disproportionate. Um, um, the other day, when I was talking with these um, children, I uh, these. Um, secondary students I was mentioning before um, one of the students said something on the lines of I asked them do you have opportunities to, to, to discuss politics in classroom and he said something not exactly that but something on the line the rich kids do I don't you are listening to the Friday morning break with John Gibbs on Teachers Talk Radio my guest this week Dr. Edda Sand of Manchester University we're discussing why democratic education is more important than ever. Yes, yes. I, I, I remember um, we had a debating society. I, I was taught at a large comprehensive school. We had a debating society. And for, 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 for reasons, I don't know why, I showed them a picture of the debating society room at Eton School which was a reproduction of Parliament, as far as I could tell. <laughs> and it all reproduction of the debating study might find at Oxford or Cambridge. We were doing it in the gym or something, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, that disparity, well, I don't want to get onto it too early in a way, but I'm I struck by what you were saying about that with if you look at the voters for people like Trump or the voters for Brexit, there's an educational difference. You can, you can, demark, you can, you can divide the voters up differently, but people vote. There's a there's a greater cynicism and a greater scepticism and a greater attraction to populism, which uh, we can talk about, among people who didn't go to higher education. So we seem to be storing something that dangerous up for ourselves. I agree, but at the same time, I mean, populism is something I'm I'm very interested, in. I have read lots and done some research and some writing on that. And populism is quite of a complex dynamics, okay? So we can talk about populism in terms of, um, you know, how it's usually portrayed in the press and so on, like, would you quite align with um, extreme right forms of populism to an extent, um, and, um, you know, even anti-pluralist perspective of populism, which I find absolutely problematic in all possible ways from a democratic stand. But there is also something a little, a little bit more nuanced that it's worth unpacking. 
I mean, in a democratic context, I understand that both those who have, um, you know, uh, an educational background, who've gone through higher education, and those who haven't, they're both cons the same. Because to an extent, we are all citizens. So I'm a little bit worried when we think about democratic education and political education also in the sense of trying to get everybody to be, um, you know, educated and think like us. No, not everybody will think the same. And, and, and we need to be a bit... Um, I would say a little bit careful. Having said that, not everybody, not all the students will go into higher education, not all the students will go into further education, but we should secure that regardless what their views are, regardless whether they go or they don't go into higher education, they have certain understanding about what democracy is about, certain ways of embracing what democracy is about, and also possibilities for making an impact, a difference, regardless of whether they go into higher education or not. I mean, I might say something very, very controversial here, but there is a, a book written by, by some Dutch colleagues saying, talking about diploma meritocracy, saying, well, if we look at the parliaments, there is certainly representation in terms of, not equal representation, but there is some representation in terms of gender, there is some representation in terms of race, there is some representation in terms of um, sexual orientation. Pretty much everybody in parliament has gone through higher education. And the point is, Perhaps we are also struggling in that way. Perhaps not everybody needs to go into higher education and perhaps those who do not want to go or who cannot go for whatever reason should also be equally politically represented. Um, so I think that it's, it's a very complex terrain there, if that makes sense. <laughs> it, is, it is, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's very easy for, uh, for me uh, to fall into the view that Trump supporters are or supporters of Brexit are, you know, and for, for and I'm really drawing upon my own prejudices and ideas about what the what citizen you know citizenship is a sort of liberal democratic model which I which I view and uh, feelings of anger or feelings of dis, feelings of dis, disenfranchisement are, are, not, are somehow you know to be to be sidelined. It's so, so easy to do that. Yeah, but at the same time, we can think about feelings of anger have also driven people to have more democratic enactments to an extent. You know, like um, people felt angry about the upper head and they actually tried to change that. So I'm not, I'm certainly not suggesting that fighting against the upper head was the same that people entering into, you know, some supporters and so on. I'm not saying it's the same, but I'm saying um, democracy has an element, a, 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 an emotional element uh, uh, um, uh, related to our feelings that we can we, sh we cannot, and I don't think we should actually live totally apart. Um, we are emotionally attached to democracy to an extent, and I think it's something worth fighting for, even in, in both the cognitive and the, also the emotional dimension, if we can separate them both. There's a sort of tension there, isn't there? Because as we, I guess we started right at the very beginning of the conversation, between the desire to say, well, I, 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 democracy is valuable and important and necessary, but, it, but it's not politically, but to say that isn't politically neutral. So if I want to embrace thoughtful you know education in which all all sides are considered the anti you know views views that aren't democratic should also be considered and that 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 is going to be tricky for teachers to 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 allow that sort of level of freedom absolutely it's it's a very difficult balance and i think you know even the the policies themselves keep on contradicting each other all the time because we know that teachers are supposed to you know to, to, to offer a balanced perspective and to be an extent be, be neutral but at the same time teachers uh, at least in England are supposed to be explicitly promoting democracy 
that's not a neutral perspective. That's a value system, which I agree with, um, but um, it is not neutral. Um, so in that respect, the, the contradiction is there, and it's part of the same uh, question of politics, and it's part of the same question of, of, of democracy. Um, to say that any educational system is value-free, that's an impossibility. That just will not happen. Um, so um, I think what we can agree is that the minimal values that we can, as society, agree that they are desirable, and therefore we might not be neutral on those. And I think in the, in, in the context we are, probably these values have to do something with democracy and probably has to do with something with democracy understood in terms of equality and freedom, equality and liberty, which are the pillars of liberal democracy. But having said that, in that respect, um, there is a, um, a Belgian um, political theorist, um, Chantal Mouffe, who's largely talked about that whilst we might agree with these values, these values are still open to contestation. So the question could be, do you actually align with these values? Yes or not? If yes, we can open the discussion about what these values are about. If not, then it's perhaps where we need to draw the line of this is no longer democracy if we are actually against these two principles, which are to an extent the, the, the basis of, of what the society is agreed and the democracy is about. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Introducing Eton X from Eton College, a diverse range of quality online courses enabling young people to aspire and excel. Designed for self-study, these web-based courses empower your students with essential leadership, communication and academic skills for success at school and beyond. Our study skills course sharpens their learning abilities, while the AI Fundamentals course equips them with vital digital know-how in a fast-changing world. Other popular courses include verbal communication, critical thinking, writing skills, resilience, creative problem solving, and many more. Offer the Eaton X curriculum in your school for free. Visit eatonx.com to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. This week in the news, the Joseph Roundtree Foundation published their report, Poverty 2024. Among many of its startling conclusions was that one in five people, that's 22% of the UK population, were in poverty. In 2021-22, that's 14.4 million people. 8.1 million were working age adults. 2.1 million were pensioners, and 4.2 million were children aged between 3 and 10. And overall, this represented the longest period of increased poverty in over 20 years. These figures also show that 6 million people were in what the Roundtree Foundation describes as very deep poverty. This week, widely reported, was the government's plan to ban disposable vapes. The Guardian carried a story earlier in the week of a head teacher who revealed 
that a vape detector he had installed in school bathrooms went off more than 100 times on the first day. He also recalled his horror when a student passed out after sharing a vape with someone else before school. Speaking to head teachers up and down the country, I don't think there's one school where young children are not addicted to vapes, he is quoted as saying. The Times Educational Supplement on the 24th of January carried a story that would hardly surprise many teachers. With the headline that just four in ten teachers found their last inset day useful, 41% of classroom teachers questioned in a survey described their last inset day as either somewhat useful or very useful, while a third said it was not particularly useful, according to figures published by Teachers Tab. The findings were based on 9,000 teachers across England, surveyed during the autumn of 2023, and a part of a report highlighting shortcomings in current teacher professional development. However, almost a fifth of teachers, 17%, said they would prefer to receive £2,500 worth of CPD vouchers over, or rather instead of, a £1,000 pay rise. The conclusion being that teachers value professional development if they have more control over its delivery. According to The Guardian this week, London councillors are preparing to mothball schools to avoid a boom-or-bust cycle of closures. This is primarily caused by a falling birth rate, higher housing costs and the aftermath of Brexit which saw an exodus of young families from the London area. This week in the House of Commons, Gillian Keegan, the Education Secretary, was accused of filibustering by the Speaker Lindsay Hoyle, who admonished her for her lengthy, time-wasting answers to questions over exams and crumbling schools. The Speaker said, We're having this problem every time, and it's topical questions. They're meant to be short and punchy. And finally, this week saw the conclusion of the BET Education Technology Conference in London at the Excel Centre. Among the many exhibitors you will have found, if you'd gone there, the Teachers Talk Radio exhibit, with Tom Rogers and other Teachers Talk Radio presenters conducting interviews, recording videos, which you can find on YouTube, and generally creating awareness of the work of Teachers Talk Radio. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Jock Gibbs. So, so if you are conducting a discussion on democracy with students and they uh, are very, as we said at the beginning, very doubtful about whether we live in a functioning democracy or whether it represents them uh, at all or well, um, they, you, you, those, those views, you have to facilitate, the, you have to acknowledge those views and the, tr- and the truth of those views as well. I mean, the fact the voting systems are unfair, class representation is... Is greater than you know. The, 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 we may have, we may espouse a rule of law, but it's a very different rule of law if you're rich or poor, and all those things are true. So it's going to be very critical of the democracy in which you wish them to participate. There's either a sort of tension there as well. You might leave them be more cynical. 
Um, absolutely, there is a tension. And for that, I would say that for me, um, one of the third sustain that it's not contemplated fully within the equality and the freedom is that democracies, if there is something valuable about them as well, is that they're open to change or they should be open to change. So if young people are dissatisfied about the way in which democracy currently works, and to an extent, it's understandable, um, we could say, well, but democracy also offers possibilities to change the system or should offer possibilities to change the system. A democracy that is entirely prescripted, is that longer a democracy if young people don't have an opportunity to actually change the ways of living democracy in the future? So I think that that would be my answer to the, you know, to the young people. Um, there is other forms of democracy. There is forms of democracy that we might not have a, even invented yet. You might have an opportunity to invent this. I usually think about educating for democracy, not that much educating for democracy, but educating for democracies in the sense of opening the possibilities for new things to happen. Um, people think about democracy differently. And, you know, democracy is not about only institutional arrangement. It also, um, you know, I think that was the, the American philosopher John Dewey who mentioned democracy is an associated way of living. So democracy is also young people mobilizing through climate strike, um, uh, strikes every party, you know, to change the, 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 the situation. Um, so it's all about that. So it's trying to open, open a little bit um, the ways in which we think democracy and all the possibilities, I would say, for them to even imagine democracy otherwise, if that's what they want to do. Interesting. Of course, you've got a head start with young people because they, they are naturally inclined to look at the world with fresh eyes <laughs> and not encumbered by all the prejudices and views and acceptance that things are the way they are because of the way they are. You know, as you get older, you tend to have a sense in which these, this is, these, these are the reasons we do things because we've always done it that way. You know, a certain, even when you don't want to, you resist it, there's certain conservatism. Whereas young people are going to look at the world with fresh eyes. So you have a head start with, with those if you, if, you, if you wish to embrace it, I suppose. Um, what I would say is that we should be opening the possibilities to different forms of democracy. I think we should be teaching what is there to an extent, knowing that, you know, you have, teach, you have taught politics yourself. You know that if you just go very much in the institutional line, students not necessarily will feel interested about this sometimes. Okay, so, But to an extent, teach about what is there, but also uh, facilitating that um, young people understand that what is there can change. And there is already mechanisms in what is there to facilitate change. And if there is not this explicit mechanism, there is other ways to facilitate change that can push toward different forms of democratic life. So I'm not saying we need to teach for something different. That would be me telling them what their future should be like. And that is against what I understand to be democratic. But it's about us teaching them what is there, but also somehow leaving the doors open to signal that democracy has to do with possibility of change as well. And for that, sometimes it's helpful to think, well, what other possibilities could happen? And think with them. Another feature of being a teacher these days is that I, I remember when I was at school, though clearly there was, there was no internet and teachers were still writing on the board with chalk and so on. And, yet, and today, really, in a revolutionary sort of way, students have this ability to have in their pocket a phone which gives them, a, gives them the largest library in the world, extraordinarily, but also uh, ability to shape their own in, their information so that we live there, so that we talk, people talk about the echo chamber world or the world in which you receive back information that you, that you, that you, that, that is designed to find you as a particular consumer of that information. So the, 
So young people live in a world that is vast opportunities to survey the world and understand it, and yet it, it, it shapes the way they think in ways which can seem quite insidious. You know, how can teaching and school stand up to the internet and its power and its vividness? Look, one of my main um, research agendas at the moment is try to facilitate that um, children and young people learn to disagree. I'm entirely concerned about, about the point you are making in terms of we are, all of us, but young people perhaps more closely because they, you know, they live more in this technological society even than some of us. We are falling in this kind of world where we only talk with those who already have the same you know, lifestyle, worldviews, um, political perspectives that we do. So to me, that's a huge problem, um, a, a huge problem in terms of any form of social cohesion, any form of democratic society, and any form of possibility of solidarity with those who are different than us. Um, so I think that um, in that respect, teachers have a, a, a huge challenge ahead. Um, and it's a challenge that's uh, it's very difficult to navigate because usually the, the role of the teacher has been conceptualized as the person who knows, as the person who somehow has the knowledge that uh, gives you the legitimacy to go into the classroom and deliver some concept. And what we, I'm suggesting here is that this role of the teacher, particularly those of us who are interested in on teaching citizenship or in embracing democratic forms of teaching, this role needs to be slightly modified to think in terms of not only the teacher, the teacher who knows, but the teacher, the person who can facilitate the different knowledges uh, are coexist in the classroom. Um, so when the students come to the classroom and they are within their echo chambers where they only see their wall, the role of the teacher is not only to bring the academic knowledge, but to open other perspectives. And that's very difficult. Um, one of the things that teachers find more challenging is to um, embrace um, discussions around controversial issues because there was the point about I don't have enough knowledge about this issue to actually be able to facilitate the debate. And, and I entirely understand it. I feel that myself all the time when I was a teacher and now at the university, I feel that. But at the same time, these are about political questions. It's not only about knowledge. We would never have all the knowledge. And um, we actually need to facilitate um, ways in which we can um, live with uncertainty of not having all knowledge and actually with the discomfort of discussing things with people who might have different knowledges. And I think that's a little bit of change of legitimacy in terms of what the role of the teacher is. For our teacher audience listening to this, uh, lots of teachers are going to think that, that exactly how they see themselves is not someone who's the, you know, the, the, the all-wise one. But, the, but unfortunately for them, I think, they, they exist within a, a framework of exams and examinations and schools are judged by examinations, teachers are judged by examinations, they're judged by performance criteria. And as soon as you introduce exams and performance criteria, then, then the students say to you, you know, is this the knowledge I need to know to pass the exam? And that, that then makes certain knowledge valuable. So I, I can remember very early on in my, in my courses, I teach A-level politics, and students would say, if we got into a discussion of something a bit off, off, the, off, the, you know, off, off the radar, they say, is this in the exam? And if I said, no, well, not strictly speaking, pens would go down and you'd realize they weren't necessarily as engaged. So is there, is there a twin force here? You know, how can you be the guide of uh, free, open thinking and at the same time say, well, this, there's an exam at the end of this, so you need to know this for the exam? I couldn't agree more with you, John, about that. I, I just think that as, 
it's a, it's an impossible posi- position for teachers to be in that respect and and we know that even though um when we find ourselves trying to open this possibility well I might not know everything but I'm still going to discuss this with my students because I think this is important and so on and then the students come back to you with this it's impossible I mean to be honest my understanding what I would say is that you know, if policymakers who um, are filling all these policies saying in terms of, you know, nationally, but also internationally, in terms of it is important that um, education promotes democracy and, and so on, if they really believe in this, there is something else that needs to change in the system. And this something else has to do with um, the levels of assessment and the levels of accountability we are used to. Because in a system which is so exam-driven, as you are clearly saying, the understanding is that there is only one possible answer to every single question. And that's really against any democratic principle. Um, so I, I agree. I mean, there is so much teachers can do. There is something that teachers can do. I'm not saying otherwise, but we need support from everybody here. And precisely, we need the support of the policymakers who are actually saying that they do want to promote democracy. So... Yeah, they could help a bit more. <laughs> We're living at a time when uh, there is a, there's an awful lot of reflection now on on exams and exam reform, and there's been a, there's been some work in Parliament among select committees and so on, and there's been several studies in how exams can be changed. A lot of a lot of this came from the experience of the lockdown and the suspension of exams. The world didn't crumble when exams were suspended for a year, and so there's a big op- you know opportunity to think about that, and and hopefully get the rather iron hand of exams off of the off of the back of teachers because I, I feel there has been it's been an oppressive force <laughs> for too, for too long and it's not and it's driven out of the curriculum it's sort of driven out of schools the culture of, of freedom to think and freedom to explore so that that would be good if that that happened I'm not sure whether there's a question no I, I <laughs> well I, I I don't know if there's a question either but I I, I just could say I wouldn't agree with I couldn't agree more with you. I mean, when we ask uh, uh, in, a, in a recent piece of research that that we did, well, particularly some of my colleagues did, and they asked teachers what were the main concerns in terms of um, actually promoting democracy, it has to do with the PAC curriculum. It has to do with teacher training because actually what we are saying also happens in higher education when we are actually teaching teachers. The focus and the being in what is assessed and in what um, is in the curriculum and it has to do with assessment so unless we tackle these three different things it's very difficult and teachers absolutely feel um lonely to an extent and also sometimes even questioned by their own the communities they work because in a polarized society as ours it's very easy that when you open um you know the conversation about certain controversial issues the teachers are blamed um, so it, it does require, again, if we are serious about promoting democracy, if we are serious about sa- uh, saving, I don't know if saving is the word, but about try to um, perpetuate ideas that democracy are valuable, um, we need to do some change. We do need to do some changes in education, if we do want to do that through education. Yes, and it's and I think it's the, the, the those who believe in the values of education, to some extent, it sounds very old-fashioned and foggyish to say this, but education for the sake of education. I mean, we all... I think when we as individuals pursue our own education, when we're at school, when we're at university, we're thinking things along the lines of, I'm doing this to pursue my own interests uh, and my own desires to know more about things. But the society, as it were, those who design schools, design exams, and uh, have other views about whether, whether, what, what we should learn and why we should learn them to benefit the economy, to become more productive workers, to, um, to, to, to embrace certain values in order that to avoid certain social effects that you don't you wish to avoid so on so there's a there's a tension in schools always isn't there between 
what you want to get out of it and what the society wishes to get out of it. I mean, particularly, I mean, we're gonna see, you'd see this much more if we're living in somewhere like Russia or China right now, where the school is, is, is about social control and about social value, the inculcation of social values. But nonetheless, there is a tension. You probably, as you say, can never escape. No, absolutely. Um, as I say, and to an extent, particularly with the topic you, we are discussing today, you know, about politics and education, these two tensions are very much embedded in both in politics and in education, because it's always an attention in what the society is asking for us, from us, and also attention in terms of what new generations or what new ways of thinking can bring or can change, um, you know, challenge the existing shape of the things. Education is always about, um, to an extent, a teacher attempting to do something, attempting to teach something, but also um, education is also about the possibility that what the student or the, the, the person learn has nothing to do with what you try to teach them. So it's always open to, to an extent. And I think the same logic applies to politics. And this, you know, it's challenging. It's very challenging. But, it, you know, um, there is a, 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 an art philosopher, Biesta, who calls this the, the, the beautiful risk of education. Because it, it is challenging, it is difficult, but the same risk opens possibilities for the unexpected that sometimes might bring very beautiful things. Uh, that, that, thank you. I, I'll, I'll try to remember that. That's a lovely, <laughs> lovely phrase, the beautiful risk of education. And it can seem risky and it, it can seem that I think teachers are having themselves challenged, particularly right now, because in the news. So as we speak in France at the moment, there's uh, a, a new story of students from um, Muslim backgrounds who were offended by a teacher showing them uh, a Renaissance painting with lots of nudity in the Renaissance painting. Now, from the from the from the values of France, more so in some senses than this country, there's a there's a strong democratic link with secularism. So, part of being a good citizen in France is suspending your disbelief when it comes to education, or rather, suspending your belief when it comes to when it comes to education. So, in in the school, you have a religion free space, but of course, the students coming into the school, every part of their lives is guided by religion, and so there are going to be cultural conflicts that come from the students. We're going to say your values of pluralism and free speech contradict our values of morality. Absolutely, and 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 that's part part of the of the democratic discussions there. I think I mean it's worth separating a little bit what happens in France, as you already said, in terms of what happens in Britain, because you know in France the same tradition of secularists has to do with trying to get away of the oppression of the Catholic Church to an extent, uh, having imposition of of certain. Um, world bills into the, the children. So the idea of the, um, of the democratic Republican citizen in France is very much against the, the Catholic Church. And that's why um, the tradition of secularists to an extent is so clear in French schools. And, and it, it drives um, issues that particularly from, from a perspective in Britain might be extremely challenging. And I, I totally understand why they are challenging. And uh, at the same time, I would go back to the point I was saying before. So can we have these conversations? Would these students who actually um, complain about seeing pictures of nudity aligned with um, discussions around freedom and equality we were talking before? Is this a, possibility, a possible conversation or are we positioning outside these frameworks? I think if we are positioning ourselves inside these frameworks, the same conversation is part of the democratic exercise. Um, is this something we should be doing? Where? Not should we actually allowing students to be able to leave the classroom before starting the conversation? How we do go about that? This is politics to an extent. If 
we position ourselves outside the democratic values. We, we, we try to kind of suggest as kind of starting point, this equality of, of freedom. And we start, then start saying, um, I don't know, is the teacher going to be, um, his life is go- or her life is going to be threatened or anything like that? Then is another issue. Then we are actually positioning ourselves fully outside um, the conversation, the democratic conversation. And we might need to stand against this, I would say. Um, but there is obviously a fine line, not always clear <laughs> to, to an extent about these discussions. I entirely agree. How do you find, as someone in higher education, it applies to you? Because as um, the ideal of higher education, even more so than schools, because schools are much more, there's always going to be a sense in which schools to prepare you to be a good, you know, skilled person to participate in the workplace. It's always going to be there, and it rightly should be. But in higher education, there's, there's going to be a, a purer sense of, of pursuit of knowledge. And yet you're living a time of, uh, cancel culture of uh, resistance to certain views about gender and so on that w- will must must to some extent impact on impact on you and your and, and in, in higher education I don't know if you've experienced anything like yes uh, i i absolutely have and uh, as you know as any person who is feels him or herself as an educator uh, it's it's the type of situations that really have a strong impact on you and you go to sleep and you start thinking whether well, I should have done something differently or you know I should have done what I did and what were the consequences of what you did for this student or the other student and and so on I mean um, higher education um, it, traditionally has been at the avant-garde of to an extent free um, free speech and you know academic uh, freedom uh, and so on um, but we need to be careful to um, thinking in terms of what are the consequences of what we do. To me, I my my aim with my students. A lot of my students want to be teachers. Not all of them want to be teachers, but most of them want to be teachers or are teachers who are doing further studies and so on. Um, to me, the idea is about trying to ask questions, and that I'm not gonna stop asking questions for me. Is clear asking questions about uh, uh, you know even asking questions about what knowledge is wh- whose knowledge is valuable wh- what type of um, knowledge we take for granted and, and and to me this is the way i i understand it um i don't see myself as an academic who is giving many answers perhaps i'm coming across wrongly in this interview and i'm giving too many answers but i instead i think <laughs> I, I think myself as someone who would like to facilitate to pose questions and 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 get um you know, my students, regardless of their age, thinking, and perhaps opening the possibilities that tomorrow or in 20 years' time, who knows, something will click and say, oh, there's this other option that I had not considered. And and that's how I'm embracing it. But as I entirely agree, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not straightforward, and it wouldn't be the first time I, I leave the classroom and I end up, you know, crying in my office by myself, like I should have done something different because I felt I had said something offensive to a student or something that had come across as offensive. <laughs> I, I think lots of our audience will identify with that, and I certainly do. The uh, you relive; you're very exposed as a teacher and lecturer. You are. It's uh, the things you say are—they uh, appear out of your head in a moment. You've said them, and they're out there in the world, and it's very much you. Uh, in a relationship with students that you you can yeah you, you can get it wrong <laughs> you can say the wrong thing or you can say the thing that someone will think is wrong others will think is right you can say the right thing for a student but the wrong thing for another it's it's education is not it's not a, a you know never black or white and it's not a, something you can predict to an extent so it really depends on the relationships in the classroom and with you as well i think so far, we've been talking about the, well, the beautiful danger of education and the tensions that inevitably exist within schools between their 
many rather conflicting objectives. And schools, it strikes me, one concern I have, above and beyond those in a way, is that schools have to be optimistic places. Naturally, they have to be optimistic. You have to present students with the possibilities of a future life, of the excitement of all the things they might achieve in the future. At the same time, they have to be honest places. And I think in this world of competitive schools and marketing schools and schools presenting themselves as institutions with values and attitudes which seem themselves at times to fall into the world of marketing. How can we, as a school and as educators, be both honest that the world is a difficult place and that success isn't guaranteed and acknowledge that there are rather too many losers in this world and that acknowledging unfairness, injustice, inequality is actually part of being honest with the students and recognising the world that they will inevitably see for themselves. Therefore, schools have to be places of honesty and criticism of history, of our culture and of our politics in ways that are maybe more radical than we would always find in schools or maybe always be comfortable with. And that's if we don't do that, students will be, well, they'll see the difference between the fantasy and the reality, and they will turn towards populism and the politics of escapism and conspiracy theory. There is some sort of feelings of, of, of the way in which the world is operating is only benefiting some. Okay, um, there is a, even a theory which is called, I don't think I have mentioned that before, if I have, forgive me for that. Uh, it's called the, the losers of globalization theory that refers to the populace as the people who have lost something through the globalization processes. That something could be um, their economic situation because we live in a world in which certain um, economic sectors have been localized. That something had, can be in terms of um, their cultural ways of living. They feel that they're... Uh, cultural styles are threatened by multiculturalism and so on. And um, and some might feel that something has been lost in terms of we have now international organizations or economic business that operate internationally that sometimes seem to have more power than the people voting. And let's let's be honest about that. Particularly, I would say the economic part. Yeah, that's not a bad description of the world. No, is it? no, I, I, I think I think all these concerns are absolutely uh, understandable to, to an extent. I think my main issue when it comes to populism and the, the, the moment in which this becomes, to my mind, problematic is when we take um, forms of populism that are anti-pluralist by nature and understanding that all the people are and need to be the same. Okay, I think that's very much a problem. And also, um, when they take the understanding that the rule of the majority will need to apply regardless of any consequences for the minorities. I mean, democracy has to do with the rule of the majority, but, you know, it absolutely has to do as well with the rules in the sense of protecting the minorities. So for me, that is the line where populism becomes something that's understandable and something that we can, you know, we can even embrace to an extent in thinking about how to um, move for towards different forms of democracy that might be more responsive to forms of politics that actually go away from what I would understand democracy to be. And for me, democracy has to do with pluralism. No, you know, absolutely. So any form of anti-pluralist perspectives on, 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 on populism, I think that that is where I find myself quite trouble. <laughs> and of course, I know that when I, as I was earlier, rather loftily 
asking schools to be optimistic and at the same time brutally honest, that's a very difficult task to fulfil. I guess teaching is rather a difficult task to fulfil. And, well, the problem for us, in a way, is that the devil has the best tunes and that in this age of fear and anxiety, people like Trump have a brilliance in peddling the politics of fear and of suspicion and of anxiety. And uh, that, it seems to me, is the heart of political education is to confront fear and anxiety, honestly, and yet with optimism. Um, precisely, I think that, you know, uh, the type of readings and, and theoretical frameworks I, I, I would agree where I find myself closer, the point they are making is how is that more pluralist perspective do such a worse job than more anti-pluralist perspective in promoting certain forms of populism that would align closer um, to um, what a lot of us would think to be democratic values. Because there is certainly, um, you know, there's certainly being uh, left-wing types of populists that have kind of claim against, uh, uh, um, you know, the, the power of economic structures. I recall, for instance, in Greece, how Syriza was um, complaining about the politics of austerity and there was war imposed to an extent. So um, there's a lot of varieties of populists, but for whichever reason... Um, the, the, the anti-pluralist variety seems to be um, more popular <laughs> nowadays in a number of countries. And, 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 and I think that that's also a matter for, uh, you know, for the political uh, leadership who aims to struggle for different forms of democracy to think about. Um, but obviously that's outside my, my, my scope. <laughs> in, in, when you're educating and training teachers, are you encouraged by their... Um, by what you see, their values in education and why they came into teaching and why they, why they want to pursue that career? Um, to an extent, yes. I mean, I have never come across, I always tell my students that when, when they, you know, first year students studying education, a lot of them wants to be teachers. And I tell them, if you are here, it's because you want to make the world a better place. Nobody's here to make money. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. You would be elsewhere. Um, it's it's not um, it's it's not the <laughs> it's not the economically driven um, self interest that move people to be teachers. That's not it. Particularly those who want to be teachers to begin with. I mean, there's always the case of someone who ended up teaching because you know didn't know um, what to do. I mean, that's always going to be the case. Okay, so, but um, but most people actually those who want to be a teacher who have some interest they are interested in making a difference they're interested in making the world a better place and that's a, a, a privileged group of people to work with um not all the academics find themselves in 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 this position you know working with um, people who aspire to make the world a better place okay so that's absolutely but simultaneously I also acknowledge that more and more the, 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 the new generations that um, go to study at higher education, all they have experienced is a, an education system that's very much, as we were talking before, exam-driven, assess-driven, and a very particular form of um, education. And to, sometimes it, I fear that that really limits 
um, it can really limit their way of understanding what education is and what education could be. And that's precisely my job, to try to open perspective in terms of, okay, so this is the system we have currently. But the same way we talk about democracy opening possibilities for different systems. Um, it's also my job to try to think, well, this is a system we have currently, but we can to an extent, try to change the system. And there's nothing telling us that the system will not change in the future. I mean, the, the, the type of um, educational system you have in England now has nothing to do with the one you had 30 years ago. It's very, very different. It's very, so, you know, another change can happen. And, and then you will encounter something else. So it's this kind of combination to an extent of, yeah, this is a, 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 it's wonderful to work with people who are um, committed and who want to make the world a better place. Um, but it's also about troubling this kind of, this is the status quo of education and thinking a little bit outside the box. People who go into medicine, people who go into teaching, they want a better world. But the world needs to make the conditions for these people to be able to operate in a reasonable manner. And I think that that's a lot of the pressures that teachers nowadays are experiencing. Well, I think that is a lovely place to finish. And I thank you so much for this discussion. I've enjoyed it very much. It's made me think a lot about the things that I think we should all think about. And it's, if nothing else, it is certainly a call for the kind of schools that often get uh, undervalued and pushed aside by the, by the pressures on us all. So, Dr. Edison, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for the invitation. I also really much enjoyed the conversation and learned lots. Thank you, John. <laughs> And that brings to an end this episode of the Friday Morning Break with John Gibbs. This week, my guest was Dr. Edda Sant, Senior Lecturer at Manchester University. We were discussing the importance of democratic education and why it may be more important now than ever. If you've enjoyed our discussion, or you'd like to listen to it again, or indeed you missed it, you can find it on Spotify, on the Teachers Talk radio site, and many other platforms. You can also find the work of Dr. Sand on the internet and on the Manchester University site. Many thanks for listening. Join me again in two weeks' time. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.